You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. All right, I'm going to read for us scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 9. So if we flip over there, it's going to come up on the slides as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekoroth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, his son Saul, Take one of these young men with you, and arise, and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shilashah, but they could not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in the city, and he's a man who's held in high honor. All that he says comes true. So now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant of answered Saul again uh, and said, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Samuel said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they came to the hill of the city, up, went up the hill to the city, they met, they met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just up ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have, have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be priest over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Here it is who shall restrain my people. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jeff. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you today. Welcome to RHC. Uh, Before we dive in, I know it's been a tough week for some people. Some of you may know there was a very well-known a Singapore Christian who passed away this week, and uh, if you knew Joe, I'm so sorry for your loss, and uh, good for us to be praying for his family. So that really is uh, yeah, very, very sad news, and 
reminds us of the fragility of life, and uh, by all accounts, um, this man was a godly man who loved Jesus and wanted to live all of his days for him, and that's a wonderful example and reminder to us um, that as we live our lives day, day by day, we don't know uh, what's coming our way, but we can live um, with our whole hearts and give them to Jesus too. And then also great to have Craig Clark, uh, a friend of mine from South Africa from many, many years ago. I was trying to think, I don't know if you were my youth leader, maybe when I was like seven years old or something, um, and uh, then planted a church many, many years ago, but great to have you and Wanga with us here today as well. All right, we are, we are looking at 1 Samuel 9 and 10 today, and I want to begin by asking you what God is like in your mind. What is God like uh, to you? A.W. Tozer uh, famously said that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why does Tozer say that what comes to mind when we think about God is so important? Because, friends, how we conceive God to be like deep in our hearts shapes how we are likely to respond to Him, how we relate to Him, how we view God. And the Bible tells us that this God that we've worshipped this morning is a holy God. Now, I know for many of us, uh, particularly those who are Christians, when you think about God being holy, what you may be inclined to think of is that God is uh, without any sin, that God is pure and blameless, and all of those things are true. Those are all part of God's holiness. But holiness in the Bible is a bigger category than just being morally blameless. Holiness means that God is set apart. He is utterly distinct and different from us. God does not fit into any of our categories. Imagine a small child who's grown up in a home and the only men that he's ever interacted with have been violent and abusive. And then suddenly, as like a young boy of the age of 10, he suddenly meets a man who is strong and tough, but who uses all of his strength to protect those around him and loves and serves that little boy. And suddenly, his categories are broken in his mind. He's suddenly seen that, that, that men can act in a different way. And for many of us, friends, we've grown up thinking of God in a certain way, and God wants to confront us with himself in his word to help us recognize that God is bigger and greater than who we think he is. C.S. Lewis was trying to capture something of this in his book, Prince Caspian, and Aslan is the Christ figure in the story, and Lucy is seeing Aslan again, and she says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. And Aslan replied, that's because you are older, little one. And she's obviously confused by this, and she says, not because you're older? And Aslan said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, as we grow to know and to walk with God and to look at his word, we find him bigger and greater in our minds. And we begin to have our, our minds shaped by who he is in a more accurate way. And this changes who we are. I can still remember many of the moments when I realized something about God that I'd never seen before. I remember one bend of a road driving around in my car where I understood something of God's um, grace and his sovereignty that just melted my heart. These moments shape and, and change our lives. And today, friends, in our passage, we're going to see how God's otherness, his holiness, his largeness is seen in how he rescues his people despite their rejection of him. Our sermon today, from this text, we have three points. Firstly, we're going to see God rescues despite rejection. Secondly, God rescues according to pattern. 
and finally we'll see how we must respond to God today. So, if you weren't here last week, uh, last week we saw how God's people in 1 Samuel 7 and 8 rejected God as their king. And in chapter 8, which was last week's text, in verse 7, God says very explicitly, let's have it up on the board. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of his people and that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And then in our text today, chapter 10, God repeats this idea, or this idea is seen again. Today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. So the context of our passage today, God's people have turned their back on him. They've rejected God by saying, we don't want you to be our king. We want an earthly king like all the other nations. Now, put yourself in the shoes of these people. I don't know how, you don't have to raise your hands, but I don't know how many of you this morning have felt like you've ever really let God down, rejected him, made a mess. What do you think about God and his attitude towards you when that happens? Maybe some of you think that God becomes angry only, scolding, kind of thinking and plotting in heaven how he's going to make you pay. Maybe some of you are treated by authority figures this way. And this means that in your mind, you think you've blown it with God. It's all over. You may as well just abandon him fully, thinking now that you've blown it once, you may as well just go all the way. You've lost God, so you may as well just double down in your sin. What's the point of turning back? Well, maybe some of us know God's not quite that capricious, right? I mean, he's not quite that bad. And we think, you know, God still kind of will tolerate us. He's not entirely shut us off, but you think that he's in heaven a little bit passive-aggressive. He's kind of tolerating you. Knows he's got to be kind, but really frustrated. And therefore, you respond by withdrawing from him, keeping your distance, kind of like a cold war has set in between you and God. It's almost like if you go to a work function or event, and there you come across an old colleague that you had like difficulties with years ago. And you're supposed to be on good terms, but it's really awkward and so you're kind of like, there are these awkward glances, forced smiles, being polite, small talk, but there's no heartfelt love or affection. There's a sense of distance or guardedness. Is this what God is like toward us? Friends, this is not what the, the, this text shows us God is like. In Isaiah chapter 30, God is speaking in similar circumstances to his people that have turned their back on him. They've rejected him by turning to Egypt. And God beckons them, invites them back to him. He says, in return and rest is your salvation. And then wait for what he says in verse 18. He says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself. He rises to show mercy. Friends, here is a picture of God who sees his people that have turned their back on him and he's sitting there waiting He's waiting, but he doesn't have his arms folded kind of with a scowl on his face, waiting for them to come back so he can teach them just how bad they are. This is a God who's waiting to say, come back to me so I can show you how large my heart is toward you. Friends, what kind of a God is this? And how would you respond to God if you knew deep in your heart that this is what he was like? Friends, I want us to see two things about this God from our passage. Firstly, I want us to see how God is at work amidst God's people's rejection to provide a king for his people. What's amazing in our passage is how 
intentional God is to find his people a king. Remember, he's just said, you've rejected me by looking for a king. And one of the things that most commentators say about this passage is that the idea of God's sovereignty or his providence, how God is guiding every step along the way, is super evident. And we notice that though all these details, nothing is haphazard in the story at all. There are so many pieces that come together. Saul, uh, his father loses the donkeys, a fairly strange thing to happen. Saul and his servant go looking for them. They look and look, they can't find them. But as they look, they wander further and further away from home. And they stumble into an area that they wouldn't have been otherwise. They're asking people, have you happened to see? Then they give up the search. The servant has an idea about the man of God, but they don't have anything to give him until the servant suddenly, I mean, ironically, the servant of all people finds a coin in his pocket and suddenly has the fee for a profit. And so they go and find him. Later on, we see all these details. Three men, two will give you this. Friends, it all seems so ordinary. It all seems so uneventful and and, and just kind of run of the mill. But then suddenly in verse 15, we see that all of this is a setup because God has been directing all of these events in order that he can bring uh, Saul to Samuel and anoint him as king. And verse 15 says, Now the day before Saul came, so all this has led up to this day, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him. Friends, Samuel, Saul is just looking for donkeys, lost, can't find it, go there, try there. There's a prophet here, do you have a coin? I mean, he's just bumbling about his life and God is orchestrating about this time tomorrow. I'm sending you a man. And in fact, the Hebrew, of verse 15, because of the way that the grammar works, means uh, that Yahweh, the Lord, is the first word in the sentence. Yahweh had revealed to Samuel the day before Saul came. It's making a point that God is over all of these events. We also see here that there's some other themes that come through in, uh, in this chapter, the theme of lost and found. So remember, Saul's lost the donkeys, and then they try and find them. And the word found or find comes up like about 15 times. It's a real emphasis that there is searching and finding, but ultimately it's God who finds the donkeys. And then at the end of the passage, we see a parallel. Saul, when it comes for him to be appointed, is lost. They can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage. And chapter 10, verse 22 says that the Lord has to speak and tell them where to find Saul. He's hiding amongst the baggage. In other words, friends, what the writer of 1 Samuel is, is, uh, is telling us, just as the donkeys were lost and only the Lord could find them, not even Saul, so Israel is lost without God, but God will find them a king. And the key question that we ask then is why is God doing this? If God's been rejected by his people, Why does he seem so intent on helping them go into so much detail to find a king? And this is the second thing we must see. We must see why God acts in this way. Now, I've already brought our attention to verse 15, but verse 15 and 16 show us why God has acted in this way. The day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man. You shall anoint him. And then look at what's underlined. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Friends, what is going on here? God wants to raise up a leader for his people and a king, because they're being oppressed by the Philistines, and God's heart is moved. 
And God says, let me raise up a king who will deliver them from the Philistines because their cry has reached me. In other words, friends, while God's people are turning their back on him, saying, give us a king like all the nations, God responds by plotting. And what is God plotting? Revenge to discipline them. Friends, God is plotting how he can deliver them from all of their enemies. He is plotting their rescue. Many of you will know the story of Les Miserables, where the uh, thief uh, is in jail. He's released for having stolen something. He, because of his criminal record, he can't find anywhere to sleep. But a bishop takes him into his house one night and gives him a place to sleep. And uh, it's a real act of kindness of this bishop to bring in this thief into his home. And in the middle of the night, what do you know? This thief goes and sneaks out of his house, stealing one of his precious silver candlesticks. He's going to take something which he can trade for money, and he leaves in the middle of the night. Well, in the middle of the night, he's caught by the police. They search his sacks, and they find this silver candlestick, and they take him back to the bishop's house. They wake him up in the night, and they say, he's fled from you, he's stolen your goods, and now we've got him. We will lock him up. He will never be let out again. Now, friends, what would you do in a situation like that? How would you respond? And the bishop, in a beautiful moment in the story, responds in the most gracious way. He acts as though this was part of the plan all along. And he says, no, 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 that wasn't stolen. I gave it to him. In fact, I gave him two. And he says to him, you're so silly. Here's the other one which you left behind. And sets him all free. And he tells him that this act of grace This act of kindness is to transform his heart, to make him a straight man, to help him live a different way. Friends, God comes to show us his kindness and his grace here, that he can show us the openness, the largeness of his heart, that we may turn to him and trust in him at all times. This is the amazing grace of God, friends. Now, I'm not trying in any way to minimize Israel's sin here. They have sinned grievously. But I want us to see how the main character in this story is God and how he responds. We must not trivialize Israel's sin, but friends, we must not minimize God's mercy either. His mercy is more. Don't we sing that song? What love could remember, no wrongs we had done, omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum, thrown into an ocean without bottom or uh, or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friends, why does God want to rescue his people despite them rejecting him? What's in the heart of God? I think the next slide shows us. Look at how God refers to them. He refers to them as his people, my people, my people. My people, these are God's covenant people that he's bound himself together with. He, he loves them. He is for them. This is God's inheritance that he loves. Friends, this is what you and I are. If you put your faith in Christ, if you belong to him today, you are God's people. This is his heart toward you. Think about how earthly parents who, though they may be so exasperated by their children, still have a heart of such tender love toward them. How can they forget them? God himself says, In the book of Isaiah, I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. Can a nursing mother forget her her child? I've engraved you in the palms 
my hands. Friends, how much more than, than, than just us can a, a holy God not forget those that he has loved? And he tells us here that, that even in the midst, friends, of their rebellion, he hears their cry. They've cried out because of the Philistines that are oppressing them. I mean, friends, these are a people that are in the act of rebellion, and yet he sees their pain. Look at what he says. For I have seen my people. I've seen my people. I've seen my people. Friends, God, even in the midst of their rebellion, is responding. And what's so ironic here is that, amazingly, God is orchestrating things so that he somehow saves his people not just despite their rejection, but through their rejection. They've rejected him by asking for a king, and it's the king that is going to lead them out and deliver them against the Philistines. Friends, God is doing some crazy like origami here. He's like bending and twisting their circumstances and what they've wanted so that ultimately it will be a path to their own salvation. And friends, doesn't this point us so magnificently to the heart of our God who takes the greatest evil this world has ever seen, the greatest rejection of him this world has ever seen, and turns it for our salvation. Think about Jesus and his death, that though he was rejected, has become the means of our salvation. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, says, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord, our King, and Christ, the anointed Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified, rejected Savior, dies on the cross, rejected and scorned, the cross becomes the instrument by which we are redeemed and reconciled to God. Friends, this, what does this mean for us? Let me tell you what this means. You're here this morning, you found yourself discouraged by your own sin, you feel like you've blown it, maybe your friends invited you to church, and you're kind of doing that like Cold War thing with God. Friends, this means you must not harden your heart in the midst of your sin or draw away from God, but when you have blown it, to rather come near to Him in the midst of it so that He can save you. The problem with our sin is that it hardens our hearts toward God when His heart remains wide open to us. And so like the prodigal son who is busy calculating in his mind, I'll never be able to go back and be a son, but let me just go back to the Father and Maybe I'll just be a slave. I'll just be a servant. At least I can get a meal a day. And he goes back with a guarded, uncertain heart. And what does he find? A father who runs, who exalts, who rises to show mercy to him. Who's been waiting patiently on his porch to be gracious to him. And opens wide his heart to him. Friends, if you harden your heart toward God this morning, you will miss out on the grace that is available to you. And this, friends, is how we see the otherness, the holiness of God. God is perfect and pure, but He is distinct from us. He, is, he exists in a different category, and He saves His people here, not despite their rejection, but through it. And this is His heart for us, friends. He loves us, He's for us, and He works to deliver us. But we must not take this for granted. We must, when we see this, we must respond to Him. And to respond to him, we must see how God works. So let's see, secondly, how God rescues according to pattern. Now, I want, we're going to have to apply our minds a little bit here. When it comes, I know some of you for your community group studies are like, you know, trying to wrap your head around this passage. I was talking with someone who I met uh, on Thursday afternoon who was telling me 
like he's doing his CG study this week. There's no CG guides given out to, during Samuel. He's got to apply his own mind, and he's trying to figure this out. How do we make sense of Saul in this passage? Now, it's complicated because Saul is presented in a kind of neutral way. There's some signs that Saul's not going to do very well. Remember chapter 9, verse 1 to 2? He was tall. He was handsome. He had a rich father. And if you've read Hannah's prayer about how God brings low the mighty but exalts the low, you think that's not a very good sign. And we see with Saul as well. Uh, there's some things that he does that maybe are positive, some, but it's not very clear here. We know later he makes a, a, sh a shipwreck of his life. So surely following Saul as our example in this text is not really what we're supposed to do. But we know often when God does do something, particularly for the first time, like here instituting a king, there's a pattern. I think there's a pattern for us to see, not just about Saul, because I don't think he's particularly noteworthy, but we see the kind, how God works to install a king. So we can look at the pattern of the, the office of the king, not just of Saul, all the time whilst recognizing Israel needed a better king than Saul. And we have a better king than Saul. We have King Jesus. So there's a couple of things I want us to notice here. Firstly, the king's job is to be a deliverer to God's people. I'll be brief because we've already mentioned this. Verse 16, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Friends, just like God is a rescue of his people, so the king stands to represent God. And his job is, as we heard last week, to be under the word, to write the law, and to deliver God's people. This is what God's king comes to do. So friends, I know that in Asia, sometimes our view of authority figures is of a certain kind of authority figure. This authority figure here, God's authority, friends, is used for your good. God is a ruler. God is a king who comes to deliver his people. And for some of us, God wants to reframe our view of authority. Many of you have authority in your workplaces. You're managing teams. You're leading people in the home. That authority that is given to you is to be for other people's flourishing and their blessing. That's what God is like here. So in Matthew 1, when the Gospels introduce Jesus to, to Mary, you will bear a son, his name will be Jesus. He will save, deliver his people from their sins. The king is for you and I today. Secondly, the king is introduced here in covenantal ways. Now, some of you are thinking, where on earth is that in the passage? Uh, so just track with me for a little while. There are many details. This is two chapters long. We can't look at everything today. But in verse 11 to 13, there were some odd details given that some people say, why is, so much why is it so specific, all the different steps that Saul uh, takes to basically become king? Essentially, when Saul meets this person at a well and then gets directed to a feast, commentators say this is an echo of what we see often in the Bible, and particularly with Abraham and how Abraham found a wife for his son Isaac, where he meets someone at a well, then gets taken to a feast, and this is how he's being introduced to his spouse. Furthermore, the, uh, the kings later on in the Bible are often called Israel's flesh and blood. In other words, the king has a kind of intimate relationship with the people. And 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 17 talks about how there's a covenant between the king and God's people. Friends, all of this is pointing and alluding to the fact that the king is not just a ruler, but there's supposed to be some kind of an intimate covenant relationship. It's alluding to a kind of wedding 
between the king and his people. The same way that Jesus comes, friends, not just as our king, but as our groom. So in John chapter 3, when John the Baptist is introducing Jesus, he says, the best man is waiting and rejoices when he hears the bridegroom's voice at the wedding. And John says, that joy is now mine. Friends, we serve a king who has not just come to rule, but a king who loves us, intends to spend eternity with us as our groom, who has affection for you and I. And maybe some of you have grown in churches or been raised with a view of the faith that just has God as a distant deity who gives you the rules and you just, you know, don't break the rules, keep your nose clean, stay out of trouble. This groom, friends, is entirely different. This is a king who loves his people and longs to spend eternity with them. Thirdly, we see the king is to be empowered by the spirit and under God's word. In chapter 10, we see Saul's uh, anointing. The spirit comes upon him. He's going to prophesy. He's empowered by the, by the spirit uh, to do his task. And at the same time, he's under the word of God. Uh, he has to write the law. Samuel, in verse 25, gives him all the duties of the king. This is someone who is going to be constrained by God's law and someone who's supposed to be empowered by God's spirit. Now, we know Saul is ultimately going to fail at this task, unlike Jesus, who finds himself empowered to go into the world, uh, coming out of the wilderness, sorry, before he goes into the wilderness, stands against the enemy by the word of God. And this is because, friends, the victory that Jesus is going to bring us is a holy victory. It's a distinct victory. It's a victory that's different to the kind of categories we have. The victory Jesus is going to bring, friends, is not one with swords and spears, but one where he'll lay down his life for our sins. And we see this in our fourth point. The king is recognized by signs before his enthronement. One of the curious things in, our, in the passage is how Saul's uh, kind of path to being king has multiple stages to them, right? So first Samuel sees him, he's anointed. Later on, there's like the casting of lots. Then he's publicly recognized. There's all these different stages. And Saul, as the king, is slowly being unveiled to those around him. This is actually the king. This is who God has chosen. And there are many who miss that and dismiss it. And one of the ways that people recognize Saul himself, that he's the king, is because signs are given to them. Have a look at it. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But I want you to notice how there's similarities with our King Jesus, who takes on a humble babe's position, not recognized by many, starts to do his ministry, is anointed, filled with the Spirit, and then, as John's Gospel says, there are signs. There are signs, signs that point to his identity. Even after his death and his resurrection, friends, there are still some who do not recognize who he is as King. But the scriptures say one day, the day is coming where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, in this text, there were signs given, some of them slightly odd, to help people recognize who the king was. It seems as though, like I've said, the the anointing was initially private before others see and recognize. So what are the signs that are given? Well, he's anointed. He meets two men. I mean, look at how specific these prophecies and these signs are. He meets two men with news of donkeys. Then it says three men will meet you. One man is carrying three young goats. Have you ever stopped and thought about what it's like for one guy to carry three young goats? All right, all right. I mean, this is pretty specific. 
Three men will meet you, one carrying three young goats, one will be carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, okay, and then he, the, the guy who's got three loaves of bread will give you two of the loaves of bread, then you'll go somewhere, then you'll meet a group of prophets coming down the mountain, and you will get caught up and you'll have the spirit and you'll prophesy as well. I mean, there's some very specific signs here. The signs here are to help convince Saul he really is this king that God has called him to be. And friends, likewise for Jesus, John's gospel specifically speaks about signs that are given. The first of the signs, the wedding at Cana, one of his signs, raising Lazarus from the dead. But John's gospel shows Jesus doing all of these signs, and then it tells us that there is a great sign coming. There is one sign above all of them, the final sign, and it is an unusual sign. And John's gospel tells us that final sign of Jesus is the sign of his death and his resurrection, the strangest, strangest, most upside-down sign. And Jesus' death and his resurrection, friends, is the final sign for those of us who bow our knee now in faith before him to recognize that he is our king. And not just that he is our king, but the kind of king that he is. In John chapter 19, Pilate is kind of mocking Jesus, mocking the Jews, behold your king. Uh, and then says to the Jews, shall I release to you your king? And the Jews shout back, we have no king but Caesar. They're rejecting him. But this one, the true king, will lay down his life on the cross. He will die for their sins, for our sins, and he will rise again. And friends, this sign, this sign that shows us King Jesus is a sign that doesn't only show us who he is, but it shows us the kind of king that we need. That because of our sin, because of how we've turned from God, because of how this story of God's people is our story of rejecting God and turning our back on him again and again, that we need not just a, 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 a savior from our external enemies, we need a deliverer from our hearts and from our own sins. And that's what we have. And that is the sign of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And this is why, friends, this God, this God cannot minimize sin, not dismiss it, he can take Israel's sin so seriously. He can feel the pain of their rejection. He can not say it doesn't matter, but he can still open his heart wide to his people because this God knows the day is coming where he himself will carry all of his people's sins himself upon the cross. And therefore, his mercy to us can be more and wide because he will take it himself. Friends, this king comes with signs, and so does our King Jesus. And finally, the king is received by some and rejected by others. We'll look at it in, in a moment. Verse 26 and 27 says, there were some men whose God had touched, men of valor who received Saul, and there are other worthless men who say to Saul, can he save us? They reject him. Friends, this again, here we are in Singapore. 500 of us here this morning who've received, many of us who've received Jesus. But friends, how many hundreds, thousands are there in this world who have turned their back on him? And this was the time, in Je this was the same in Jesus' day, it's the same in our day. And I as a pastor get to speak to people and sometimes it seems like some of the reasons why people don't want to serve God 
is they think there's so many people who don't believe in Jesus. I mean, how bad can it be? But friends, throughout history, there have always been those who've dismissed the king. But if we see the signs, we'll put our faith and trust in him. Friends, in all of these things, we see the pattern of how God will anoint and empower the king, our true groom, because of his love for us. I want to ask you this morning, can you see and recognize how this points to Jesus? Now, Saul actually did lead his people to victory against the Philistines. There was a deliverance that he had. Will we turn to Jesus and give him our whole hearts? How then should we respond to this today? I alluded, uh, mentioned briefly that our final subpoint there, the king is received by some and rejected by others, it shows this mixed response. So let's turn and see chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So there's some who God has enabled to see and recognize this is the king. He, Saul's not going to be perfect, but yet God is going to be at work through him. But some worthless fellows said, how could this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Friends, those who reject the king here are deemed worthless fellows. Now, some of you are wondering, why are they deemed worthless? They're deemed worthless because they reject the signs and the word of God that he will deliver them. Remember in chapter 9, verse 15, God has said explicitly, Saul will save the people from the Philistines. And what do they say here? Some worthless fellows say, how can this man save us? Friends, they are literally rejecting God's means of salvation. They're looking at Saul and they're saying, no ways, cannot be. Friends, when we're in trouble, we are only as strong as our deliverer. If you're drowning, you run out of energy and all you have left to keep you afloat is like a straw that you would use to suck Coke out of a can, you're not very strong. Against the weight of our sin, friends, we can cling to many other things. But there's only one deliverer that can save us. And these worthless fellows have rejected their means of salvation. Why do they reject the deliverer? These men fail to see the king because they don't recognize that God is saving through someone who looks somewhat weak. Saul's hiding in the baggage. Can this man save us? They diminish God's work to save Friends, we can minimize Jesus as our Savior and not really think that He's the one to deliver us. We look at Him and say, dying on a cross? That's not the kind of ruler. That's not the kind of king that I want to serve. That's not the kind of God that I want to put my faith and trust in. Friends, remember Paul writing to the Corinthians. The, the, the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God, it's the power of God. Those looked at, at Jesus dying on a cross. That's not the Savior we want. Or maybe this morning you just think your, your problems are entirely outside of yourself. It's your job, your boss, your spouse, your lack of a spouse, your bank account. And we've made all of our problems, all of the things outside of us, instead of recognizing the root and the heart of what's wrong is our alienation from God. And so we reject a Savior that doesn't look like He will fit the bill. 
Or maybe as a result, friends, our faith in God is just so low that Tuesday morning at work, we just don't serve this king. And we're living on, on the treadmill of just rejecting God moment by moment and day by day. We don't turn the other cheek when the situation calls for it, but we demand our own revenge. We keep climbing the corporate ladder even when our family is suffering and end up alienating them further just because we want the prestige of a better title or a bigger bank account. Or maybe some of us, it's the opposite. We're avoiding taking a responsibility at work because we don't really want to be bothered and get into the mess of managing people and we don't care about loving and serving our culture or those in our workplace. Maybe some of us don't turn from sin because it just seems so fulfilling in the short term. Friends, these are all ways that we reject the king because it seems somewhat foolish. To serve Jesus, I've got to say no to pleasures that all my friends are engaging in? That doesn't make sense. And we despise it. Can this save us? If I say no to sin, will that really make me happy? Or maybe we don't soften our hearts to those who've hurt us. Friends, when you're tempted this week, as you guide into the, into the week, I want you to remember the king that we serve. Not recognized by this world, but a true king who acts in love for his people, even when we reject him. And remind yourself that his full coronation has not yet been seen publicly, but it will be one day. Friends, the gospel, what Jesus has done for us shows us this is the, this is the largeness of God's heart and this is how God works. Because Jesus didn't only die for our sins, but he rose again victorious, which means we can trust him no matter what he's calling us to do today. Jesus' life, death and resurrection shows us, you and I today, friends, we must respond to God's rescue, even when it seems unusual, or even when it calls us to give allegiance to a king this world finds strange. But as we stare, friends, at that old rugged cross, we see the horror of sin, we see the largeness of God's heart, Aslan gets bigger. Aslan gets bigger as we grow and mature. We see God is bigger and greater. And our hearts are turned to him. Now, friends, just as God touched some men's hearts at the end of this passage that we've looked at today, he's touching some right now. That feels like your heart, your, your conscience being pricked. It's the spirit nudging you, urging you in a certain area of your life to come and bring your whole heart to God, to trust Him. Can I invite all of us this morning to turn to this King Jesus right now, wherever we're at? Let's pray. Fathers, we heard last week the, Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament is our story in so many ways. And yet, Lord, you remain faithful. And for us as your people, you've given us your spirit who is at work in our hearts to turn them toward you. Holy Spirit, we, I pray that you would be poured out upon this place right now. Won't you touch our hearts? turn them toward you. Give us the courage to confess our sins, to follow you boldly, 
to tell our friends about you, Jesus, to live for you, to follow your commands. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would empower us to live for you this week, to live for King Jesus. Wouldn't you orient our hearts right now? We ask this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.